electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. Here's what's on tap tonight. From queues to crude to credit and beyond, the traders set to reveal the most important chart they are watching as we count down to the end of the year and look ahead to 2024. Plus, taking flight, airlines roaring higher, the Jets ETF up nearly 20% in the past month. We'll see what the options action is saying about the next move from here. And later, dialing up new highs at T-Mobile, getting behind the gains at Walgreens, and why a couple of AI laggards are catching a bid right now. I'm Melissa Lee, coming to you live from Studio B at the NASDAQ on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami, and Mike Coe. We start off with a rebound on Wall Street, with the NASDAQ popping nearly 1.4%. The tech-heavy index climbing back into positive territory for the week and looking to close out six straight weeks in the green. The S&P and Dow also up today, both breaking three-day long losing streaks. All this as investors turn to a trio of key events in the coming days, tomorrow's jobs report, Tuesday's CPI print, and of course, the last Fed decision of the year coming in less than a week. So with all these potential catalysts looming over the market, we wondered what our traders think is the most important mm. chart right now. A lot of pressure here. <laughs> Guy, I want you to kick it off. It's always pressure on this show, Melissa Lee. I think it's a bank. So if you go into the premise that our economy is driven by people buying things, right? People having jobs, people buying things. People buy things on credit. Well, bank credit has been contracting now for the last couple of years, and it's starting to move in a pretty noticeable way. So I think that's concerning, especially when you couple that with the fact, and we're going to know about this within a few hours, this unemployment rate that I think is going to start ticking higher in a meaningful way, in a stair-step way higher, which, by the way, the Federal Reserve wants. So if bank credit is contracting, if people are starting to lose their jobs, in my opinion, it can't augur particularly well for the economy and then subsequently the stock market. Now, you will say correctly that you've had these concerns for a while. You're 100% right, Melissa, and it hasn't uh, manifested itself. What game are we stocks. playing now? This is, no, no, no. There's no reason to leave. We're here. two minutes into the show. <laughs> However, I just think it's, again, I use the word inevitable. I think there's an inevitability here. I have a question about the state. Please. Does it include mortgage debt? I believe, well, it's interesting you say that. Because I, don't I would think that there would be a drop-off because people are taking out less without, mortgages. Without question. But I also think it's interesting. You know, the banks were on Capitol Hill, regulation mm-hmm. coming, more stringent requirements in terms of, that's all fine. It may happen. Private equity will fill or private credit will fill that void. Problem with that is private credit will fill that void at probably 2x where banks lend money. So I think it's somewhat problematic. Is this problematic in your view or is this this, the consumer becoming a little bit more careful? Maybe we want the consumer to be more careful. What consumer? The American consumer? Yes, the American consumer. More careful? I don't know. Dan, what do you think? No, thoughts? no. I, I mean, listen, you know, I think as you pointed out, she would be right to point out that you've had this concern for a while. And we have. But like that's kind of the point in a way, you know, like the way kind of economy and the, and the mechanism, how it works into the markets or whatever. So uh, to me, it's all going to happen at once. And that's the kind of the history of the last 25 years. The consumer goes until they can't anymore. And there's some sort of other event that causes some sort of dislocation. And then it's reflected in the in, in risk assets, in my opinion. Tim, what is your chart? 
My chart is the NASDAQ 100, and it's the NASDAQ 100, though, relative to the S&P. And I, I just get back to uh, the, the double-edged sword that is the leadership that has been the story of the market for the last two and a half years, maybe three years, maybe even five years. Uh, and this chart, by the way, again, it's a relative value chart. At home, you can do this if you want to sub, uh, basically do QQQ divided by SPY, and you get a ratio. And you can see that we're about to set either uh, fresh new relative highs to the S&P, which means the biggest stocks in the world are leading, or we're at the old triple top, and we're at a place where, frankly, uh, we talk about this all the time. It's also very equally scary that the concentration of longs in these names, whether it's passive investing, whether it's hedge fund crowding, a day like today, when you have the kind of moves in Google uh, and Apple, I mean, Apple is right back to near those all-time highs. Amazon, to me, of all of those stocks, is breaking out uh, and has the best chart. But, but again, this is the story. I, I, to oversimplify it, sure, we are. We keep talking about wanting the market to broaden, but it's not. Um, there's a lot of crowding, and that's a big risk for this market. And it's a big risk that at some point these things run out of gas. So, Mike, in your view, when you take a look at that chart, is a glass half full or glass half empty? Because you could read it either way. Uh, well, certainly for the people who are buying these things, it's uh, half full and it's still filling up. Uh, I, but personally, I think a lot of these names are getting pretty stretched here. I, I, I would be inclined to fade I think all of the enthusiasm that we've seen, I mean, really, what is the enthusiasm propelling the uh, NASDAQ more than anything else? It's really this AI story, I think, picking up these biggest mega cap stocks. And, you know, I think if you've been lucky enough to ride this train, boy, I, I think it's probably time to get off. We've had, though, the S&P 500 hold up uh, as we witness this rotation. Yeah. So isn't that proof that there can be a broadening out of the rally and that's a good thing and we can survive maybe without the mag seven making new gains if they're just sort of hanging in there guy 100 percent. i mean that's the bull case is listen guess what's happening here you're having a broadening out of the rally that's a good sign energy's been rolling over but it's making up for in other places right now yeah it is encouraging and equal weight is starting to show its strength for the first time in a long time the russell's starting to participate a little as well 100%. And if you think we're going to go into next year and that will continue and inflation is going to continue to come down, the unemployment rate doesn't basically jettison higher in a meaningful way. That's sort of that soft landing scenario. It's just, in my opinion, I don't see it happening. You've also had, first of all, the inflation thing you're talking about, let's be clear, it's been painful on the consumer. It's brought the Fed to high alert. It's been great for corporate earnings, okay? It's been, and they were selling fewer units at higher prices, Ooh. and the numbers look pretty good. Um, so the, the other side of this coin is what happened to the bond market because of what the Fed's doing, and then some of the, the technical things we talk about with issuance and where we are with the deficit. We go into this payroll number tomorrow where, I mean, the, the bond market's telling you, and I, I think you could, it could be a wake-up call for everybody that thinks that rates are going to 375 quickly on the tenure. I mean, you know, the, the market's priced it in like we're getting 120,000 jobs tomorrow. The, the consensus is 185. We've had a lot of labor data over the last 10 days, different parts of diff bigger indices that have come in. And, and I think you have to be careful about that. You just said, you know, what's happened in the bond market. Nothing's happened in the bond market. Like, for all intents and purposes, the 10 years back where it was four months ago, okay? And, and rise to five. Yes, skip it. And then you tell me, where's 30-year mortgages? Are they, have they round-tripped? You, 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 they haven't. Okay. Like, like, you know what I mean? So like to me, to. Uh, yeah, and they're not going to. So I, I think you can take any data point that you want. I know a lot of us are focused on that November 13th, that CPI print that we had that caused that move in the 10 year to retreat from 5% in the stock market has been a ricochet, you know, since then. But to me, until we get some more clarity about what Fed is going to do with Fed funds rate, I, I don't really care because I, I agree with you. I actually think that the 10 year probably finds a lot of support in around 4%. All right. What is your chart? Oh, oh. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so mine is that. about that, that Fed funds rate. Yeah. yeah, it does a little bit. Um, so, listen, I, you know, I'm nothing if not persistent here. And I've made this point on many occasions. This chart is uh, over the last 30 years. It's a log chart. It's the S&P 500 versus the Fed funds rate. And you can see that funky one. That's the blue one there. And you can see those kind of rate hiking and rate cutting cycles by the Federal Reserve. And you can see the S&P 500 overlaid with that. We talk a lot about the fact that, okay, the Fed has paused, which they, you know, they did that in July. And, and so to me, that is, was the all clear, I guess, this fall to start buying stocks because the next thing is going to be that they start cutting. And a lot of folks think that's going to be good for stocks, good for valuations. That chart says otherwise. If you look at the rate hiking cycle that happened in 99 and the pause in 2000, the rate hiking cycle that went into the early 2007, the rate hiking cycle that went into 2019, what happens when the Fed actually comes off the pause and starts to cut, they start cutting aggressively. And in 2007, the S&P got cut in half. In 2020, we can all agree that was a black swan event, okay, but the S&P went down 35%. Now, it did come back very quickly, and we know why. You tell me what's going to happen in the fastest rate hiking cycle that we have ever seen in our lifetimes, okay, with valuation stretch, with all these credit dynamics that we've just talked about in a way, when the Fed finally has to cut next year, it's not going to be with a big mission accomplished sign, you know, like, uh, you know, put up behind it, in my opinion. And that's going to be difficult for risk. Assets. I want to just go through this chart just a little bit, because on the surface, it looks like the S&P 500 goes up regardless <laughs> of what the Fed does long term. <laughs> But you're saying it that, does. that the ah, right, yeah. So, so, so here's why the, not just be long. Okay, we're a be long. Show. Except that okay. a lot of folks who, who who watch this show, okay, they make lots of silly mistakes, as as I do too, by the way. Okay, at highs in the markets. Okay, they make lots of mistakes at lows in the markets, and sometimes it's just not that easy, right? And so, like again, you know, like people get their YOLO and stuff. They're getting into their second home. They're buying cryptos because they think that's the answer to this. They're doing all sorts of things. You know I what thought, I mean? I thought you were throwing the red flag on him because his chart's actually two charts. By the way, you said, oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. well, yours is sort of two charts, too, except you did the ratio. I, so you cha- you I, I presented one line. Yeah. Um, I, I like in. Dan's chart. Dan, look, Dan's, <laughs> Dan's a history book. That makes sense. I mean, that's yeah. what has happened. And, and there's no disputing that. And, and this time it, it's always different. And it rhymes and all that weird stuff. Those things, those expressions that I barely even understand <laughs> um, that one particularly. But but the 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 way this is playing out is taking longer. And that's why I think it's you know, it's it's been an extraordinary environment for picking stocks. And I think it still is. And I think it's an environment where the Fed, there, there's 125 basis points of Fed cuts. suddenly. this is like doubled in, in the last couple of weeks. And the Fed's, you know, has to hold their ground. So uh, I think it presents trading opportunities. I think the consumer will weaken. I think credit spreads are too tight. I think it's going to take some time, and I think we're going to continue to see that labor market weaken. But I bet it's not tomorrow's payroll number. Mike, what's your chart? Uh, I was taking a look at crude. Uh, I think this is a very important chart. First of all, look, it's a major input cost for so many industries, particularly everything related in the industrial space to transportation. I mean, you're talking about 30 percent of the operating expense for an airline. You're looking at 20 percent for shipping and, and trucking and probably somewhere between seven and ten for sort of the logistics companies like FedEx and UPS. It's also a bellwether, right? So we can sort of see what uh, global demand looks like in the OECD countries. Demand for crude is essentially stagnant year over year, which I think speaks a little bit to what these guys are talking about in terms of how people are doing, at least in the developed countries. I mean, the only growth we've seen in crude demand is really coming from the developing world. So I think this is an important uh, thing to look at. I think also it's psychologically important for our U.S. consumers. 
is going to represent, you know, not a huge percentage of discretionary income, but it's the one that they look at every single day. So the perception of inflation and how it's impacting household budgets, I think it's going to be impacted by the prices that they see at the pump. And even if you drive an electric car, you still buy, drive by gas stations. So you get to see that thing every day. So I, I think this is sort of important for the psychology of, of the consumer. I think it's important for the expenses, essentially, for a lot of these companies. And, uh, you know, I'm keeping close track of it also because I want to see whether demand is actually falling off. And if it is, that's evidence that things are slowing down still further. So this is this is also a glass half full, glass half empty situation, Mike, because all the things that you highlight in terms of consumer perception of inflation and inputs, you know, that's all good. Right. With crude coming down. But on the other side, you know, if you have demand coming off, that indicates a slowdown. So what is your final take on that? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would say that the demand side in the developed world is suggesting that consumers really aren't spending that much. And there's other evidence that they might be slowing down. I mean, we see rising auto loan delinquencies. We see basically peak revolving credit levels. You put all these things together and it just suggests that there's not a lot of discretionary income left in this part. But what it also tells me, interestingly, is that the developing world still seems to be growing, albeit at a slower pace. And, you know, if shipping costs come down and, and we do start to see rates fall, then maybe that will loosen up checkbooks just a little bit. All right. Well, we got a fresh jobs print out tomorrow morning. Our next guest warning a hiring slowdown is here. Let's welcome back Peter Bookvar. He's a chief investment officer at Bleakley Financial Group and also a CNBC contributor. Peter, great to have you with us. It feels like the markets want to see, uh, you know, slowing in the labor market. The markets want to see a reason to rally into year end. What derails that in terms of the print tomorrow? Well, before today's rally, uh, when I looked at the action early part of the week, I felt that maybe the market was shifting its attention from uh, the happiness that the Fed's going to start cutting interest rates by stocks to starting to question, well, if they're cutting interest rates and oil prices are dropping, that means possibly a recession is upon us and maybe I should be selling stocks instead. So if you told me the number today, I don't necessarily know which one of those things that the market would sort of latch onto. I'm beginning to think, though, that if we see a weak print, uh, I think the reality of a, a more dramatic economic slowdown next year uh, is going to be more front of mind rather than, oh, the Fed's going to cut rates and everything is going to be fine. I think Dan's charts, uh, I think, was a good history lesson. And many people in the markets weren't around on trading desks during that. And that's because the markets focus more on the deteriorating economic situation rather than just the joy of the Fed cutting interest rates. It's interesting, Peter. I think right now the market is pricing in five cuts next year, starting in March of next year, against a backdrop where I haven't really heard Jerome Powell waver all that much. So the market's seeing something I don't think the Federal Reserve is necessarily seeing. So let's play it out a little bit. Let's say it's a strong jobs number tomorrow. Does that revert? I don't say it's reversing from 415 to 5% in a 10-year. But we have an auction coming up, a lot of things to be talking about. Could you see a significant move back up in yields on the back of a strong jobs number? It, it is possible. I think, though, a strong, jo jo strong jobs number based on a, a growing, uh, growing bunch of evidence uh, that is pointing to a deteriorating uh, pace of hiring, that I'm not sure if that one jobs number is going to really shake things on the upside. I do think what would be the most concerning thing is that after this, this fall in longer-term interest rates, if it reverses in the face of still weak data, that to me is, is, is a big flag. Because we were three and three quarters 
in July in the 10-year yield. So even with this, this pullback of about 90 basis points, we're still above where we were. And you can argue that the economic situation today looks weaker than it was in July. If you look at a lot of what retailers are saying and even a lot of the jobs data, uh, whether it's continuing claims, uh, whether it's what the PMIs have said, whether it's the job openings number, whether it's the hard to get question in consumer confidence, uh, all are pointing to a slowdown in hiring and ADP. The three month average in private sector hiring, according to ADP, is only 99,000. That's a clear slowdown from the pace we saw in the early part of the year and certainly versus last year. So, so Peter, um, part of the reason why I think your work's so effective all the time is you, you, you have a macro view, you have a, an economist view, but you also have a view in terms of market positioning and sentiment, and you, you kind of weave that into an overall view. And the smart lady to my left yesterday talked about how the, re the recession is now consensus. And, and there's nothing good about that in terms of positioning, in terms of what markets are doing, both in terms of possibly uh, on the bond market, but, but that actually, um, sorry, the, no recession. I'm not sure if I, I no, recession, no recession is now yeah. consensus, not recession. Whereas we were in the consensus recession camp uh, one year ago. Um, talk about positioning against that view. Well, I think that the one thing that caught people off sides that were in the recession camp, and I'm included in that for this year, was the belief that the, the sharp rise in interest rates would have a more broader immediate impact on the economy. What I think we've learned is, is that it's more of a slow-moving slow train that's coming down the tracks rather than affecting everybody at once. But the train is still coming down the tracks. You know, I think we look at commercial real estate, for example. If your loan's not coming due until July 2024, well, you're okay up to this point. But that train is still coming towards you. So I think that and that is sort of what's made this tricky is that the economic slowdown is, in what, what I see, is, is metastasizing. But just because it's slow doesn't mean it's not happening. But I think the slowness of it has gotten people complacent, thinking it's not going to happen. Peter, always great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank Peter Bookvar of Bleakly Advisory. Um, Peter mentioned slower economy along with higher rates. That's a problem. We've got a lot of auction. We've got a lot of supply still yeah. coming on. We've got a lot of funding yeah. needs um, still that need to be fulfilled, Mike And so... Uh, rising rates seem almost to be a foregone conclusion unless there's massive demand for our treasuries. <laughs> well, I don't know where that demand is supposed to come from. I mean, that's, uh, you know, we, the supply right now is, is going to be so tremendous that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't even really matter whether the regular buyers uh, still want to own them. I mean, there's, we're just printing so much, essentially, uh, U.S. Treasury debt that it's, it's really getting a little bit overwhelming. You know, one quick point I would make is that when we take a look at rate bets, and we do see them in the options markets fairly frequently, we usually talk about equities, but we can see rate bets and things like SOFR futures. And, you know, what, what we are seeing essentially is anticipation in over the course of the next four to six months of rate cuts and fairly aggressive ones. There's actually been quite a lot of flow in that area. And, you know, looking at that, and this goes back to Dan's chart that we were talking about uh, earlier. This is uh, it's not a positive. Dan won the chart contest. I mean, really? I mean, I, I mean, I, yeah. Maybe you should get a trophy. Let's call it what it is. Yeah. And, I mean, and, and a lot the of chart, man. the regular viewers will know. I hate to sound this cautious, but like I kind of feel like <laughs> I did at this time in late 2021, right? When the Fed was about to embark on this rate, you know, like cycle, right? Like so they like, were going like, to start raising rates aggressively, right? And so like 
parts of the market were telling you that this was not going to be good for the stock market, right? And it took a little bit for the S&P to get the memo, and then it finally did. And then I just feel like 2022 was like a mirror opposite of 2023, and I think 2024 is going to get a lot harder, right? Because we don't know. Like, like the market right now is pricing aggressive rate cuts, and I think that if everyone's on one side of the boat thinking that we're just going to rally into that, it brings me back to 2021 because I think it probably goes the other way. Coming up, we're watching Lululemon and RH after our shares of both lower after reporting results. We'll bring you the numbers from the quarters next. Plus, a juiced up Jets trade. Mike is digging into the options on the airline's ETF, the names taking off, and how to play the group ahead. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Lululemon shares lower despite beating expectations on revenues and posting an adjusted EPS of 253 a share. Kate Rooney's got the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa. So Lululemon's outlook for the holiday quarter, that's really what's weighing on the stock. After hours, the athleisure maker didn't beat estimates for its third quarter sales, jumped more than 26%, coming in above forecast there. Revenue grew 19%. International revenue saw a 49% jump, while North American sales we're up 12%. Total comparable sales, meanwhile, were up 13%. That was better than expected. Outlook for the current quarter, though, that is dampening some of the investor enthusiasm. The company looking for 12% earnings growth in Q4. That was below estimates. Then fourth quarter revenue estimates also came up short of what the street was looking for. It did lift its full-year guidance on revenue. CEO Calvin McDonald, though, on the earnings call that's going on right now, talked about billion-dollar buyback. He said that reflects optimism in the growth trajectory of that business. And then on holiday spending, he said, we're pleased with the trends we've seen the start of the holiday season. That being said, the majority of the quarter remains in front of us. He said, we remain aware of the uncertainties in the macro environment, and we continue to plan that business for multiple scenarios. So a little bit of caution there at the end, Melissa. Back to you. Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney. Um, Evercore points out that usually this company gives conservative guidance for the fourth quarter, so maybe it's not entirely a surprise that they're sort of pulling in expectations. Look, it, this 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 quarter was very good, I think, given, you know, the North American numbers up 12, international down 49. We know how choppy that is, and I know it's an international growth story, um, but it's still really about what's going on in North America. And again, it's still about margins. And, and you know, that's it. The gross margin to me is something to think about. The bleak outlook, the conservative outlook, less of a concern. They're buying back a billion dollars of stock. I just don't think you're paying a premium for this stock going forward. It's best of breed. Let's be clear. But everything we've said tonight on this show is reason why I actually have a small short in Lula. 33 times next year's numbers with this guide. If our crack staff can pull up a longer term chart, you will see that the level we just traded up to was the same level of the all time high, I think, in November 2021. 
two analysts, I think, on December 4th and December 5th, Wells and Raymond James or VC Vicey, downgraded the stock ahead of this. I will tell you this, inventory down 4.5% year over year. That's a great number against sales growth of 18% or so, which means margins did do better. And operating margins, 19.8%. All this is great except the run in the stock and the valuation of the right. stock. And I don't know what VC Vicey, why they downgraded VC the Vicey. stock. But no, that's uh, not an analyst. Who are they? Raymond James and Wells. That's a great name. <laughs> Basically, it, it, it was be, the actually. run in the stock. Yeah. Um, that was why they downgraded. Well, yeah, I mean, rally 30%. You think about that. It's got a $58 billion market cap. They're expected to do $10, $11 billion in sales. So it, it gained one and a half X its expected sales this year just in the run up into the thing. And, and you know, Kate just said this, uh, uh, you know, why wouldn't you give like cautious guidance? You know what I mean? When all of your peers are doing that around you and have been, even in the higher end discretionary space, we've heard that for months. So to me, after that run, that makes sense. All right. Another after hours movers catching our attention. Shares of RH dropping after a slight revenue miss. The home furnishing retailer also posting an adjusted loss of 42 cents a share narrowed its revenue outlook. Uh, this is one that you tracked, Tim. Yeah, it's, it's an extraordinary story when you think about the, the momentum behind the stock where you had margins galore. They had the ability to protect pricing. This was a $630 stock in kind of the end of COVID because of all the strength there. Um, we traded down 48% basically from August into November, and then you, start, you started to see a rally. The valuation, not difficult here. And again, they obviously didn't make money last quarter when you get down to the, the net EPS. But um, I think you're going to get a chance to buy this thing cheaper. I think it's finding a bottom. But again, this is after a 37% move higher in the stock. I want to own it again. Mike, you like RH? No. No, I don't. Uh, Look, we, I mean, I was trying to pay a little bit more attention to Lulu. As you probably know, we own it, uh, longtime holder of Lulu. And it's one of these situations where some of these names are trading at relatively high multiples. And and this, what holds true for one holds true for the other. And and that is that if you have a certain growth expectation, let's call it 20% year on year for Lululemon, and you're willing to assign a 30x multiple to the forward number based on that. And suddenly you get uh, some guidance that looks more like 12 to 15 percent. Let's assume that the 12 percent is indeed uh, conservative. Well, that means that the earnings that you're forecasting for the next year is lower, and the turn that you're willing to give that is also lower. Uh, you know, this has come a long way. And, and like I, I say that as a holder of the stock. So, uh, you know, it, it's tough to buy these things here. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. When you trade jets, you trade jets all the way. Professor Ko is laying out how to fly into this soaring group with options. Which way he sees the airline space heading next. Plus, all eyes on the AI surge as one tech giant after another doubles down on the space. And one top analyst has a pick for who's going to really excel in the race. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money Airlines. Gaining altitude today, JetBlue surging more than 15% after boosting its guidance thanks to strong demand. Southwest, Delta, American also higher, each up more than 3% today. Option traders think the group could fly even higher. 
Mike's got a trade on Jets. Mike, what are you looking at? Yeah, so I was taking a look at the Jets ETF. So obviously, this was a sector that did pretty well. We got uh, pretty good news, I think, out of JetBlue. Look, a lot of these stocks, even net of this big run that we've seen, still remain quite cheap on a price-to-earnings basis. We're looking at anywhere from about four and a half to seven times for the major carriers. And as we were talking about uh, earlier, with lower fuel costs, obviously, that's 30% of operating expense for most of the airlines. That's helpful. So I, I think, you know, seeing the better consumer demand, that's a positive. We do also, though, have some issues on the business travel side. I think we're seeing that level off a bit. And I think that presents a little bit of uh, potential pressure. So the good news is year-end travel bookings were better and lower oil prices. Bad news is we're probably seeing business travel leveling off here. And I also, as I previously mentioned, consumers are getting pretty stretched. The revolving credit numbers tell us this. However, you know, they do remain cheap. If you're inclined to make a bullish bet, I think you could look out to the January 26th weekly 19 strike calls. Those cost about 50 cents when I was looking at those earlier today. And you won't be alone if you buy them. We did see an institutional buyer pay a comparable amount for about 10,000 of those today, looking to press a bullish bet that they had made earlier in the uh, December 18 strike calls. Tim has said so many times that these are trading vehicles. So are you they are. so are you in agreement that that they go higher? Um, yeah, and I'm yeah. trading Delta from the long side. I, I think you have some room in the stock, you know, maybe to 43, 44. And then remember, these are the stocks that didn't really participate in the reopening trade. And then as they started to get some altitude, um, they ran into higher oil prices and some other things. And, and there's always concern about when the times are good for airlines that they become the most inefficient players and operators. And I think that's still where the jury's at. I think. The backdrop here for airlines and the consumer are, are aligned right now with oil prices. I think you go higher. You needed a motion sickness bag to oh, continue that in Delta a month and a half ago. I thought it would hold 35. It didn't. I think it got as low as 31. But I'm with Tim. 43 and a half, 44 makes sense. And if we can pull up a Jets chart on the fly going back to sort of the lows of COVID, you will see we didn't get down to COVID lows. We got close. So technically speaking, you have a nice little bottom to look at that to trade off. That of. Have you have you that. ever look? It's a personal question, but have you I'll ever had it. to use the motion, the motion sickness, sickness oh, bag on an airplane? When because, I was younger, but I've I mean, conditioned myself. When you were younger, was it a, a like, so, I mean, last year? I could I mean only be insensitive. It was when probably difficult. I mean, younger, younger. Okay, yeah. just so we're like clear. Five years here. ago, younger. You know, no. You're making fun of my constitution now. Basically. I mean, that's not a fun so thing. Was it a regular occurrence or is it once? What happened from time to time? It was right up there with like seasickness, Some which is awful. Some people might be eating dinner never during this program. Well, that's unfortunate yeah. for them. Never seen that done. On Coming up, is one tech titan gaining an edge in the AI race? Our next guest digs into the space's top contenders and who's best positioned to come out on top. And ahead, place your bets. Hard Rock hits the jackpot. CBC's Contessa Brewer live in the Sunshine State. For more on that, Contessa. Hey, Melissa, and it's not just me. My friends down here, Ja Rule and Fat Joe, and there is South Florida icon from the Miami Heat, Dwayne Wade, crowded around the craps table. The first time live dealer craps have been offered in this state. We'll tell you why it's really hard rock that hit a billion-dollar jackpot right after this on Fast Money. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks closing in the green as investors awaited tomorrow's big jobs report. The Dow and S&P snapping a three-day losing streak. The S&P climbing eight-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq having its best day in nearly a month, up 1.4 percent on pace for its sixth positive week in a row. Shares of Walgreens jumping more than 7 percent today, adding to an impressive run, up nearly 15 percent over just the past week. But shares are still down nearly 40 percent this year. And another earnings alert on Broadcom. Shares lower after the chipmaker posted a miss on revenue and gave light revenue guidance. The company also raising its dividend by 14%. And big tech making some big gains today. AMD up nearly 10% after its big new AI chip reveal and Alphabet gaining more than 5% after launching Gemini, its long-awaited answer to ChatGPT. Our next guest made a call back in October that Microsoft would gain momentum over Google by giving some more details about its AI revenue ramp. Microsoft has gained more than 11% since then compared to Alphabet's loss of 2%. The pair nearly tied in terms of performance this year. So now the question, um, who wins the head-to-head matchup from here? Joining us now, Ben Reitz is Managing Director and Head of Tech Research at Melius Research. Ben, great to have you with us. Hey, it's great to be here on this nice new set. Thanks oh, well, for thank, having thank me. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoy it. We do, too. Um, so this is basically another uh, Would You Rather, which is a game that we like to play here on Fast yeah. Money. You played it back in October on your own, which is fine. Without asking, by the way, she still talks about it over Alphabet. But at this point, given the run that Microsoft has had, you still like that one. Well, today, Google made up quite a bit of uh, some performance. But, yeah, we do like it. Um, Microsoft has much higher margins than Google. But next year, their EPS growth should be relatively similar. But I think Microsoft has more upside. And I think Microsoft's revenue growth should eclipse Google as well. So um, I think that they are making a lot of the right moves and probably outperform. Uh, Google, though, near term, probably uh, makes up a little bit of the performance. Uh, Their cloud business probably a little better than last quarter, which was a miss. But uh, over the long term, Microsoft has the goods, in our opinion. The goods in terms of AI and monetizing AI, actually showing revenue from AI? Yeah, they do a really good job of telling you exactly what they're doing in Azure. And that's where people are laser focused. And last quarter was super impressive. Also, they have a lot of levers over the long term. They've got a relationship with Google. They've got a relationship with CoreWeave. They've got relationships with NVIDIA that the others do as well. But they push these levers to manage the expectations, in my opinion, better than the other major clouds. Hey, Ben, last night on this desk, 24 hours ago, we had Gemini came out. Yeah. We were just kind of reading some headlines and the reviews. We had AMD. Lisa Sue was just on the network yep. talking about the chips that they just you know, announced and talking about big TAMs and stuff. And I'll be honest, I was like a little dismissive. Based on what I was reading before anything, the stocks weren't moving. Who cares? Aftermarket, that sort of thing. To see the sort of moves that we saw in today's action in both of those names, this is real market cap here. What is it saying about investor sentiment or psychology, right? Because let's be frank, NVIDIA has gone sideways for the better part of the last few months or so. Are they looking for new ways to uh, play these trends as they go into 2024? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, AMD, people don't want to miss if that's the next NVIDIA. And even if it's a mini NVIDIA, Mm -hmm. you don't want to miss that. Um, Lisa sound, Dr. Lisa Sue sounded really good last night. Um, at their event, and she upped that TAM. And n- nobody knows what's even in that TAM. <laughs> but if she's upping it, then the logic is they must feel good. So they had their good day today, and it digested, and people feel good. I, I think NVIDIA is still a winner. I mean, it's trading at less than 20 times uh, our 20 calendar 25 estimate. And so it's starting to be a would-you-rather NVIDIA under 20 
uh, or Google under 20. You know that there, there's oh, a very very one. similar valuations, and you're like, you're like, what? What's going on? And um, you know, I'll, I'll pick Nvidia right now. It's a second derivative. Would you rather trade? By the way, I like what he did there. I mean, it's very, yeah. second derivative. How about Apple? And and how about yeah. their foray into AI? Or you know, will Siri ever be someone that's that's useful? I mean, what, what's going on here? Because it seems like you know they're kind of being left in the dust. Dan had pointed said you know Apple's days of being the most important company in the world are over. Um, how are you? You know, I think Apple's perking up. I think that, in fact, the, so they have the iPhone kind of flattish, um, but the upgrade was solid. It, we, we all know that there's the China headwinds a little bit, but th- I think they're plugging along. It, when they come out of this quarter where they're anniversarying a tough comp because there was an extra week a year ago, they're going to be growing potentially in the mid-singles. So if Apple's growing in the mid-single digits, that stock's not going down. And I know you could say it's expensive, it's this. I go to a bunch of meetings around the country. Nobody likes it that when I'm walking in the meeting, they're like, oh, I'm underweight. I got to catch up. If they're not going to miss, I got to buy more. So anyway, I feel decent about their revenues inflecting uh, and going up because Macs, iPads, wearables all going to grow. But here's the key. Next year at their WWDC in June, I think they're going to unveil some AI initiatives. And I think they're working on their own chat GPT-like thing where they're going to come out with new services and native apps that cater to AI. I don't know what they are yet, but they're not going to just sit this thing out. And I think that services is what drives Apple. And if people have an aha moment that AI is going to have an ARPU lift like Microsoft has Mm -hmm. and Adobe, I'm not going to say it's that magnitude of greatness to the EPS, but people are going to go, wow. So that stock, we have a buy on Mm -hmm. it. It's... It's tough to like say it's going to double or something, but I think it works. I think it works, and I think that when they come out growing the revenue, and then you start hearing the AI stuff, you know, the ding, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it'll start marching up, and then uh, eventually uh, a lot more AI is going to be done on the edge on your phone, and they have their own silicon, one of the world's largest chip companies, right? So I think they're good. Just quickly, uh, what is your highest conviction buy right now? Ooh. Uh, I got to say, I I really like, um, I like this uh, company, uh, Amcor, that's doing packaging, for advanced packaging for AI, but obviously Microsoft might be the safer bet. Okay. Ben, good to see you. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. It's interesting. So Ben's universe, outside a couple stocks, I mean, these were highly cyclical, sometimes commoditized companies that no longer trade like that. Now they're trading like there's this regime change and these things are going to be secular growth stories. Maybe that's true. Ben does a great job. I'll say this. IBM, very quietly, multi-year high that I don't think enough people are talking about. And I think I is the one of the letters in Sandy Canold's and Swift. anagram or whatever Swifty. they call it. Swift. Yeah, he's a big He's a Swift. Swift. He's, he's a, a Swift. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, that's Swifty, why he kind of influenced listen, listen, engineer. We're going to hear a lot about this. Okay, so we've had, we've had Gene Munster on, and he, you know, he's talked about how much he enjoys spatial um, computing as it relates to Apple, and there's no real commercialized products, and the hardware they have is too expensive right now. If we start hearing about AI on hardware, you, it's hard, you're hard-pressed to think, okay, well, they have a $2 billion installed basis as iOS, right. and Apple, if they really are doing things in the background that actually make Siri... Uh, 
uh, usable or something like that. You know what I mean? Who knows? Um, but that that will be a play. That'll be a 2024 play, but we probably do have to wait a little bit. Well, but Ben's comment about the services, we all know services is what has been driving this stock, right? And the ability to say is taking a big, bigger piece and, and to say where, you know, AI-driven software, uh, where Apple has to be and the movement to the phone. Remember, it was all on the PC until it was all on the mobile. That's a thematic dynamic that I think is, is powerful. Mike, Alphabet or Microsoft? Microsoft. They've got, I mean, they've got a phenomenal platform, a lot of people on it, cash flow king. I mean, it's, uh, it's a great story, I think, uh, even at these levels. Coming up, place your bets. The sports betting world getting a new player on the field. We'll bring you the details and the impact on the sector coming up. But first, T-Mobile's been on a tear, hitting fresh all-time highs. Should you dial into this name in your portfolio, the traders will ring in with their answers when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. T-Mobile looks to be winning the 5G race. The telecom stock hitting all-time highs dating back to the Metro PCS IPO in April of 2007. The latest move coming as the company unveiled results of its latest network speed tests. The stock has far outpaced rivals Verizon and AT&T this year. So is it time to dial into this name? I mean, AT&T's last, its all-time high was back in 2016. <laughs> I mean, one of the things we have collectively, I think, gotten around this desk is our sort of infatuation with T-Mobile versus Verizon and AT&T. And you just look at the performance, and you would think, given this run in the stock, you just mentioned an all-time high, it's expensive. Compared to those two, it is. But compared to the broader market, it still trades at a discount, and it has the EPS growth to back it up. Not only back it up, but actually should be trading higher. So to answer your question, yes, you can still own it. Yeah, actually, the stock's gotten cheaper. And, and to that extent, and look at the peers where, uh, you know, the, the, the concern around the core business and the wireless business, you know, people have been doing this forever. Bottom line is T-Mobile's finding ways to execute. By the way, I've been a T-Mobile customer since 1998, about wow. 15 iterations ago, and through some, some times where people are critical about the network. But again, it's the, the network that they've reinvested in in 5G, uh, argument that they're well ahead. Mike? Yeah, I like it. I mean, uh, you know, the other two companies you were just mentioning, they probably have bigger legacy problems, I think, than T-Mobile does. Uh, and I think they're they're obviously winning on that score. And the company is not particularly expensive. It's certainly trading a few turns cheaper than the market overall. Uh, I do wish we saw a little bit more top line growth. And you're not going to get it out of any of these, to be honest with you. But they do have decent uh, free cash flow, which supports the high debt loads that they all carry, actually. And speaking of T-Mobile, Jim is chatting exclusively with its CEO. Catch the full interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. Next up on Fast, we're heading to Hollywood, Florida, that is, where the stars are hitting the hard rock to place their bets. Contessa Brewer is there live with the story. Welcome back to Fast Money. Hard Rock hoping to hit the jackpot in Florida. After years of back and forth with the Florida government, the company winning a near monopoly for online sports betting in the state. CNBC's Contessa Brewer joins us now to break down the betting scene and what it means for investors with a few friends. Contessa. Melissa, you know who's winning right now? Fat Joe over here is winning. Ja Rule is winning right now. The big deal here is that this is the first time live dealer graps has been rolled out in Florida. And the near monopoly for Florida is owned by Hard Rock, which is owned by the Seminole Tribe. The commercial casinos wanted a piece of the gambling action, and they didn't get it. After years of court battle and attempts to get on the ballot here, it is owned by the Seminole Tribe and by Hard Rock. So they have live craps, live dealer Rua expanding. But then, of course, Florida now joins the ranks of those other states 
to offer legal sports betting once again in the state. And I asked South Florida legend, the icon from the Miami Heat, Dwayne Wade, about legal sports betting. It's great for our community, you know, um, you know, for the money that's going to come in here and the money that goes out back into our community. So, um, you know, it's great. And like you said, you don't have to go to Vegas to do this. Uh, you can just come right up the street. Do you love craps? No, I, I don't love losing money. <laughs> And look, the sports betting alone could be huge for Hard Rock because at the very lowest estimate, they're thinking it could be $1.3 billion in EBITDA. Remember, that's the metric that game, gaming insiders and analysts really look at as a measure of profitability. On the high end, they think more than $3 billion on sports betting alone. So it is a big deal that the, that the Hard Rock brand and the company and the tribe was able to ward off the competition coming into the state, Melissa. What are some of the sort of the, I don't know, the, the tangents off of this? Is there a halo effect in terms of betting overall when it comes to online betting? And, and is there a thought that this takes away uh, betting revenues from other places where people might not be going because they can go to Florida instead? Well, I mean, that's a great point. One thing that they know is that these live dealer games are a huge draw for an international audience and who comes to Miami for visitors, uh, international gamblers. I won't lie, it's a little hard to talk about business when you have the winning. It makes me want to just turn around and join in here and anyway. Ja Rule, you're on CNBC Live right now. Hey, we're getting this money right now on live on CNBC. I, I mean, this is one way to make money. This is a good way to make money. It's a good way to make fast money. I mean, as long as you manage it wisely. I, it, it's so true. I, I think that there are other ways. The, the gaming manufacturers like uh, IGT and Aristocrat may see a big boom in business here. We'll have to wait and see how that plays out. And also whether, like Penn Gaming, if they can partner here for sports betting. Let's All right. Contessa, thanks. Go have some fun. More fun. Contessa Brewer. Big fan Spe of the show. Along with the Speaking of betting, fat I, show ten, ten bucks if you can give me the name of a Ja Rule song. Uh, the 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 ten the, bucks. The, Let's gamble on this. The, the lover. Felt Bang. loving. I'll, give me ten bucks loving, right now. Mesmerized. Anyway. Final trades. Final trade time, my co. Airlines rising, jets calls. Tim. Utilities have made a big comeback. I think they make a bigger comeback. And like all those people that think rates are going lower, you want to own the XLU. Dan. Yeah, my chart won the A block. This chart, the XLE, is one of the worst charts in the market. I think it loses the final trade. You know, Mel said to me in the green room, Tim, why would you trade for soda when you got the, the alien coming back in August? And she made a great point. Yeah. You know why we do it? Because we're the Yankees, Tim. That's better, what we better do. better be able to sign them. Otherwise, it was a pretty expensive one-year rental. GDX, Melms. Gold ain't done. Thank you rental. for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.